Hey, I'm Rick Steves. For the last 15 years, our mission on Travel with Rick Steves has been to stoke your travel dreams and to share inspiring stories from every corner of our globe. While the world grapples with the pandemic of coronavirus, we understand that trips are temporarily off the table for many of us. But we'll get through this, and we'll keep on traveling when this crisis becomes old news. Until then, let's use this time to stoke those travel dreams as we enjoy hearing from our friends and experts about their adventures. If this crisis teaches us anything, it's that we're all in this together, and it's important to get to know our neighbors. A long-distance hike in Europe can offer more than just getting away from it all. Coming up, Cassandra Overby helps you gear up for exploring one of the historical footpaths of Europe. It's actually about bringing people to the very best of civilization, the very best of history. Ancient Greece is fascinating, but so is getting acquainted with today's Greece. Guides from Athens tell us how much their city has improved with a youthful new energy. We do have a history, but those of us growing up and living in Greece, we also wish and hope for a future. And Christopher Woods recommends his favorite contemporary gardens around the world. But be forewarned about what you'll find in Dubai's Miracle Garden. Peacocks made out of petunias and kind of Swiss village made out of geraniums. And it gets millions of visitors per year. Get ready to walk across Europe and explore new frontiers in public gardens and in Greece in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The Victorians left us some lovely gardens to enjoy. But Christopher Woods lets us in on some exciting new trends in landscaping and garden parks that we can explore around the world. That's a bit later in the hour on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Plus, guides from Athens update us on the atmosphere in the Greek capital. They'll recommend neighborhoods to explore where a youthful can-do attitude is helping revive the Greek economy. First, Cassandra Overby is back with more practical advice for planning a cultural hiking adventure on historic walking routes across Europe. Thanks for joining us, Cassandra. Thanks so much for having me. So Europe is kind of unique because it's got these very well-established major hikes that have an infrastructure, actually, and they have got a history. Tell us just briefly about the, the hiking infrastructure in Europe. I think it really helps to understand that unlike in the United States, where most trails are in wilderness, the trails in Europe have a totally different history that's not all about the wilderness. It's actually about bringing people to the very best of civilization, the very best of history. So you have trails that were built because people wanted to do pilgrimages. You have trails that were built because people needed trade routes. And you have trails that were built so people could go from village to village and even sell their wares. So this is something we have to remember. In the old days, a trail, if you had rush hour, it might have been on a trail. Right, because exactly. Because they didn't, obviously, they didn't have paved roads. And, yeah. and this was the trail. I'll never forget being in Montenegro in Kotor. And uh, Montenegro is Black Mountain. That's what it is, literally. And there's this community, the historic, uh, you know, nation up on the top of the mountains. And from this fjord-like bay off the Adriatic, you have a switchback road. But next to that switchback road, you've got a faint little trail. And it's so evocative to me because it reminds me that a thousand years ago, everybody had to get to Montenegro by hiking up that switchback trail. And you can do it today. Right. So you've got this history tied in with this nature and you've got a love of getting out into the outdoors that Europeans have. So if you want to enjoy Europe on foot, of course, there's many different trails that you can sort through. But I want to talk just about the mechanics of this. First of all, you can take a tour or you can go on your own. If you take a tour as a hiker, what are your options? A lot of people want somebody to drive their gear or set up the hotels and, or, or have a naturalist to go with you and explain the flora and fauna. Right. So there are a few different options that I like to recommend to people. You know, you do have the completely independent route, which is easy to do in Europe. It's easy to do that by yourself. But there are self-guided tours where companies will set you up with walking directions. They'll set you up with luggage transfer. They'll make all of your bookings for you, give you a map, and then you just go and you explore the trail by yourself. Or you can do fully guided trails. And that way you'll have someone narrating the trail while you're walking, in addition to booking everything for you. What are the pros and cons of each, would you say? 
Yeah, so fully guided is the most expensive option always. But if you're someone who is an over planner and you really obsess in your normal life about all those plans, it can be really nice just to let go and let somebody else handle all of the logistics and have someone share insights, especially a local, about their culture and about the towns that you pass through. Because I'll never forget walking up in the Swiss Alps with my friend who was a local nature guide, and he took me to find an Edelweiss. And you don't just find those. I mean, they're hard to find. Right. And he took me just to the spot and he set me up and he reminded me how precious this is and how we're not supposed to pick it and everything. And then we saw it. I would have never appreciated that without a local guide. Right. Without a guide, you really don't get those local insights. Right. Someone who's from that area can show you so much more than you would ever imagine. Because there's a lot hiding in that mountain face. There is. That you wouldn't recognize without that local person. Right. I'm kind of intrigued by the the middle way where you have somebody that, that you got a Sherpa with four wheels, basically. They you take do. your gear ahead and then you're footloose and fancy free all day and you're not having to go with a group and you're not having to stick with a guide, but you have them set it up and you know you've got a, a warm dinner waiting for you in a cool little mountain hut down yeah, the road. Yeah, and that can be a really great option also because you're hiking just with a small day pack. So mm-hmm. you have some snacks, you have a rain jacket just in case it rains. But and if your partner is exhausted and complaining about that blister, they can hop in the car and meet you there tonight. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. Because then two people don't have to risk having one person scuttle the whole mission. Yes. I think that's pretty important. Cassandra Overby is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. She recommends 15 of her favorite hiking trails, and she's mapped them out for a walking vacation in her book, Explore Europe on Foot. Her website is CassandraOverby.com. Now, when you go, do you like to have companionship? Or have you gone alone to see that you'll just meet people as you go? Or are you just appreciate this time alone with nature? What, what thinking do you go through before you determine that? So I like to mix it up on all of my trips. So I did a lot of research trips for my book. And sometimes I had people join me, and that was really wonderful. Sometimes I did the hikes alone, which was great for really getting into an area and kind of losing my identity and losing myself and just kind of soaking everything in like a local. And then it was also really nice to reach out and actually make some new friends. So I wanted to hike the GR34 in France, didn't know anyone who wanted to go. And I felt like I really wanted people to join me on that section because it's on cliffs. So I reached out to a Parisian hiking group and I said, hey, I'm coming to hike this trail. I'm an American author. Do you have anyone who would be interested in hiking it with me? And I found a couple, a Parisian couple, who came out to Mont Saint-Michel and met me. And we hiked for two days together. And it was amazing. That's a great idea. Talk about a a nice initiative. And and I would think on the trail, people are inclined to be friends. I mean, it's like-minded people. Everybody's in in a positive spirit and so on. I want to talk a bit about the gear because... I'm always looking at Germans, and Germans are sort of famous for their walking sticks. You yes. Know? What's with those walking sticks, anyways? So they really help if you have creaky knees um, or, you know, if you've just been hiking for a long time and you'd like to extend your hiking life because they make the load a little easier on your body. Okay. Yeah. And um, I would think they're a little, it's a little safer if you have four legs instead of two when you're going down be. a rocky slope or something. Yes, especially for balance. By no means do you have to have those sticks. Is it something aerobic also or something for exercise when you're just walking straight on a paved trail to have that arm motion going? Because I see Germans like, Germans are famous for this. I mean, it's just like there's people almost kind of think it's kind of funny because here come six Germans and they've all got their walking sticks and they look like a little animation almost. Yes. What about uh, boots? I I, I grew up thinking you got to have boots, but now there's options. There are options. So my favorite option is called a European walking shoe. This is a specific type of shoe that's kind of a hybrid between just a nice-looking shoe that you would normally wear when you're traveling and something sturdier that's good for being outside. So it's waterproof, has a good sole, but it blends in. You know, they're usually black or brown. They're very lightweight, and so you can have the same shoe for when you're going to a nice museum or out for dinner as you do when you're on trail. And And what's it called again? A European walking shoe. A European walking shoe. And just if you don't even care what you look like in a museum... Is there any compromise on that from having a good old-fashioned hiking boot? So good old-fashioned hiking boots, especially high tops, are good if you have um, ankles that need a little more stability. Hmm. So, But if you don't need that stability, I just recommend going super light, and you really aren't compromising any other function by okay. choosing a European so walking shoe. if you shoe. feel you got... It's not a safety thing. You're not more likely to sprain your ankle or something, no. as far as you know. Hmm. Okay, that's good to know. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cassandra Overby. She's written a book called Explore Europe on Foot, laying out the greatest hikes in Europe. And I was impressed by the last half of this book, which is really just hiking wisdom. You make a point to 
fix little problems before they get worse. I mean, I've seen people crippled on the community Santiago taking four days off of the off of the pilgrimage because they've just got terrible feet. Right. What do you do to keep your feet healthy on an extended multi-day hike? My biggest tip is to actually go um, a little out there with your sock choice. So I always hike in merino wool socks, and that's what I travel with also. Are you layering it with another sock or just that? So actually, I choose merino wool socks that have holes for all of your toes. It's a super smart thing to do, and I recently discovered it probably about two years ago. It makes sure that you never get blisters. And they look a little goofy. When you put them on, it takes an extra second because you're trying to fit all your little toes into the individual holes. Does that keep your toes from rubbing together? It does. Ah, Brilliant. It does. And it keeps your foot from rubbing in the shoe more. And so um, if you just do that, that will eliminate, I would say, probably 98% of your blisters. And then I would think there's some wisdom of just if you sense anything going on, stop and put on some protective uh, Right. Stop uh, immediately. That's what I tell all of the people who hike with me. As soon as you feel a twinge, don't be strong. Don't hike through that. Protect it. Put, yeah. put some moleskin. Mo- yeah, moleskin. Moleskin, right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cassandra Overby about hiking in Europe. And there's a lot of high-tech gadgetry that people um, are relying on nowadays. What's the biggest innovation for you as far as uh, confidence on the trail and so on? I like to use a smartphone um, that's not connected to the internet or cellular service, but it does have GPX tracks on there. GPX tracks. Yes. What is so that? So it's like Google Maps, but for the trail. So it'll show you exactly where you are on trail, where you're walking, and where the trail should be. So you have two lines, what you're walking and where the trail is. And if you're doing it all correctly, those two lines become one. So this is just like me using Google Maps to find a, a friend whose house I've never been to in the city. Right. But it's up in the mountains. Yes. And, and you, you load it up online and then you use it when you're offline. Right. And what does a hiker who's relying on that do to make sure they don't run out of battery? So I carry a spare battery with me that uh-huh. I plug into. And so your battery will drain faster when you're mm-hmm. using the screen a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just keep it plugged into my spare battery and I'm good to go. What's your wisdom on the right kind of backpack? Ooh, I love backpack talk. Um, So always choose a backpack that has water bottle holsters. Mm -hmm. Choose a backpack that has a waist strap. So So, you're going to distribute the weight from your shoulders onto your waist also. Yes, yes. Is that realistic if somebody is packing light and even if they have a big personal frame? uh, I mean, you should really try to get a waist belt to distribute the weight. Yes, that is the biggest tip. Because inevitably, you will put more in your pack than you think you will. That's right. And it's going to be a little heavier. And hiking in Europe, you generally don't need to worry about taking food and tent and sleeping bags because you're going from hut to hut. Yeah. Talk really uh, briefly about the uh, mountain huts and how you will eat and sleep on your favorite kind of hike. So there's a good variety of the mountain huts. Um, Up in the north, like in Sweden, it's like indoor camping, so very bare bones. But if you're somewhere like France or Germany... This is basically a comfortable guest house that just happens to be situated in the mountains where you will be cooked some of the best comfort food of your entire life. You can purchase wine or beer. You're surrounded by all this gorgeous scenery, and you can either have a private room or you can share a dorm room with other walkers. And when it comes to eating, you are exercising, you're hungry, you've got high altitude, this food's going to taste better than ever, and you can eat all of it that you want. Yes, you're burning so many calories that there is nothing that you will want to say no to. When you set out on a four-day hike, do you generally have your mountain huts reserved before you leave, or do you just play it by ear? So I almost always reserve mountain huts in advance because a lot of times they're situated one day apart. And so, you know, everybody wants to stay in the same place each night. Okay. So it can be good to because just get those reservations taken care There are the best, of. the most characteristic and, and well-run huts, and they're the ones that will probably book up first. Yes. And it's pretty straightforward to make a reservation, and it's reliable. Yes. And then you get to see the same people all along your hike, so you make friends along right. the way. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Cassandra Overby about Exploring Europe on Foot. That's the name for a book, and um, it's an inspiration. I'm going to plug a little bit of that dimension of Europe into my next trip. Thanks, Cassandra. Thank you. Our next stop is Athens to see what's new in Greece. And Christopher Woods recommends the most interesting contemporary gardens you can experience around the world. We're at 877-333-RICK on Travel with Rick Steves.
I'm Rick Steves. With borders temporarily closing, countless travel dreams are now on hold. But I know that we'll get through this crisis, and when we do, it'll be more important than ever to venture out into our world. So, for now, let's enjoy these virtual adventures through the radio. And when we're able again, let's promise to keep on traveling. It's been a while since the news from Greece has had much of a positive ring to it. Come to think of it, it seems like they've always had squabbles among their politicians and with their neighbor countries. And the Greeks still lag behind most of their European partners economically. But hard times seem to be yielding to a more optimistic tone these days on the streets of Athens. Two Athens-based tour guides join us now to let us in on how the scene in Greece is changing. Philippos Kanakaris and Maria Sulas, thanks for joining us. Thank Thank you. So, Philippos, when you take somebody from far away around Greece, what's an experience you want them to be sure to have? Of course, I want them to find out about the history, the mythology and everything that's a desire for everyone to discover in Greece. But I also try to connect them with nowadays, with the reality of modern Greece. Uh, Because we do have a history, but those of us growing up and living in Greece, we also wish and hope for a future. So I'm trying to connect the visitors with what's happening right now and how this history has informed our lives and our dreams and inspirations in life. So you've got Zeus and the Acropolis and all of the Aphrodite business, but you've also got a contemporary society that has its struggles and its challenges. What's an example when you're in Athens? What's a lesson you would like people to take home with them? Well, it's a very interesting question because I do take people to the archaeological sites like the Acropolis, Mm -hmm. but I also take them in the areas that are around the Acropolis, the old part of Athens, and there's an interesting thing about it because over there you will find a lot of modern street art. And uh, that's a very interesting experience for people because imagine seeing a wall with a very modern graffiti done by one graffiti artist and in the background you can see the Acropolis. So you feel that they are invited to create a kind of a sensorial bridge between the past and the future. Oh, that's very nice. And uh, I know from walking around Athens, I love to just walk aimlessly around Athens with the Acropolis always towering above me. Acropolis, by the way, means the city on the hilltop, and that's where you've got the Parthenon and the great ruins that remind us of the golden age of Greece a couple centuries before Christ. But there's a lot of tagging and a lot of ugly graffiti, and I understand, um, like in any big city in in that part of Europe, I understand that a landlord or somebody who runs a business, they're going to have graffiti whether they like it or not. I understand if they hire a street artist or, or commission a street artist to really take their wall and make something beautiful, the other street artist or graffiti people will leave it alone. Absolutely, and this is very nice that you mentioned that because I I don't like tagging and random things on the wall. But the city of Athens started this effort around the 2004 Olympics and they gathered some of the prominent, let's say, graffiti artists of the city of Athens and they commissioned them to paint the walls, especially the sides of the estate buildings because nearby there's some areas that are a bit, you know, not the richest areas in the city of Athens. You're talking about a a neighborhood just a few blocks away from the parliament building, I think, that is famous for anarchists. Yes, that is the neighborhood of Exarchia. Exarchia. A very much misunderstood neighborhood of Athens. How is it misunderstood? Because, yes, it is a hub for the anarchists, but me growing up as a student, as a university student, it was also a spot where the free thinkers, the, the young people, would go and there's affordable cafes and restaurants and bars where you can go and exchange political views, discuss about things in a matter which is not necessarily marginal or aggressive or something like right. that. It's free. It's a free spirit. It's very, very free. And it's very convenient because if you want to go down and make some trouble, it's downhill on your scooter to the parliament building. Exactly. And then you get all the TV cameras and the police and you can cause some problems. And then you go back to your cafes and talk politics. Absolutely. We're practical in Greece. <laughs> now, Maria, when we're talking about these different neighborhoods, can you explain the, the top two or three neighborhoods that a visitor might want to be aware of? Definitely the Placa. The Placa is the old city, which is situated around the base of the Acropolis, one time the residential area of the city. In my uh, understanding, that was essentially the city. The city, 200 correct. years ago, that's yeah, all there was, correct. was this little yeah. community at the base of the Acropolis. Yeah. Today, the touristy zone with all the shops and the hotels and uh, pedestrian only, and it's charming. Yes, it's beautiful. I mean, now it's been sort of reclaimed. So as you say, 
lovely shops and restaurants. Mm-hmm. But the wonderful thing is it's all interdispersed with the ancient ruins of the city. So you turn a corner yeah. and you have the Lysicratus Monument. And as I said, lots of lovely restaurants and cafes and handicraft stores, souvenir shops. Ancient Greek and Roman Absolutely. Ruins. Okay, Absolutely. so that's the touristy quarter. And then within a 10-minute walk from there, you've got a couple other quarters. Yeah, one of my favorite areas is uh, an area known as Siri. And I enjoy going there because it's... Uh, Siri, but it starts with P, P right? P, P-S-I-R-R-I. Yeah, it was originally an area that was uh, sort of populated by the refugees who came over from Asia Minor, but it's been reclaimed. We have a movement in Athens, youth-led, called Take Back Athens. And so this is an area where the youth have really taken it back and you have a wonderful buzz of young people in the cafes and there are places that the skateboarders can hang out. There are sort of places that the graffiti artists hang out. And if you enjoy graffiti, it's easily one of the the best places to go. And there are some amazing little pubs and, and cafes and diners that are bohemian. They're like ruined pubs or something mm. where you go down, you step in this little door, almost no name, and you Correct. walk down a little tiny alley or a passage and then you step into this if Norman Rockwell was Greece and you lived today, it would be a Norman Rockwell Greek experience. <laughs> exactly. Wonderful diversity. I mean, it's fun. I mean, when I take uh, groups down there and point out all the different things that there are to do, and the first thing that usually hits people is, whoa, the graffiti. But uh, when yeah. you take them around and show them, and it's, you know, Americans sort of think graffiti. What is You know, this idea? is very important. And I've got to admit, I do not like graffiti. No. Like uh, Philippos was talking about it. If tagging moved into my neighborhood, I would join some committee, some action (laughs) group to get rid of it, you know. But it's a reality in so much of Europe. And I think if you live there, it's just like you can't complain about the weather. This is the way it is. You got graffiti everywhere. And it's a reminder there's a different strata of people out there and they're running around with spray cans after midnight, you know. This is right. Uh, But it is an art form and you can actually take a tour and Mm -hmm. learn from it and see it in a more constructive and positive yeah, kind of light. Yeah. And and then you're not hung up on that graffiti. It's important not to be hung up on it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Greece with two Greek tour guides, Maria Siolas and Philippos Kanakaris. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Irene's calling from Delta in British Columbia. Irene, Hello. thanks for the call. You're very welcome. What are your thoughts about getting off the beaten path and enjoying Athens? Have you been there? Well, I've only been there once, and it was like in 1972, so I'm sure a lot has changed. I know everybody does the Acropolis and um, Santorini and, you know, the ones that everybody's talking about, but I was just wondering if the guides had some hidden gems um, either in Athens or on the islands that they would recommend that should not be missed. You picked off the the things that everybody would know about and would want to see, the Acropolis in Athens and Santorini out in the Greek Isles. Let's leave Athens. Let's talk about uh, the islands and also the Peloponnesian Peninsula because you can have a lot of easy Greek thrills just a two-hour drive south of Athens on the Peloponnesian Peninsula. But one way or another, we do want to have that quintessential Greek experience. Uh, Philippos, what are your favorites? First of all, thank you so much about this question because this country is not just about Santorini and Mykonos. They're beautiful, but there's more to this country. Mm -hmm. And if you go to the Peloponnese, which is the area where my parents come from, first of all, in an hour and a half, you can be in one of the most quaint cities you will find in the country of Greece, Nafplion, the first capital of modern Greece. Nafplion. So this is a a wonderful place. And uh, what's exciting about it is that you see all the different parts of history, the different people that conquered this area, because Greece has been Mm. conquered by many. So you find ruins from the Venetians. Mm. uh, You find the uh, ruins from the Ottoman period. And also a short drive from there, you can visit two of the most exciting archaeological sites of this country, the mythical site of Mycenae associated Mm. with the Trojan War and the best preserved ancient Greek theater in the country, which is the theater of Epidavros. So you can have an experience which encapsulate different aspects of going on holiday. From Nafplion, which is for me the most charming and just comfortable city I know of in Greece. I love Nafplion. And as you said, it's a springboard for some of the very best ancient sites. Epidavros is the famous theater. What century is Epidavros from? That's the 4th century BC. 4th century BC. And that seems old, but about a thousand years before that, we have Mycenae. Exactly. And so it's always important to remember the Mycenaeans were as ancient and mysterious to the Greeks like Socrates and Plato as Socrates and Plato are to us. So it goes way, way back. And then 
not going so far back, but you can climb from Nafplion up 999 steps. It's hot. Yes. It's a long hike. And you get to the top of that, and you find a gateway with a Venetian winged lion. Yes. Reminding it, us. It is the Palamidi Fortress made by the Venetians. They uh, ruled the city of Nafplion for centuries. And it is a very, very interesting sample of what this country is about. Different influences, different things that pushed the advancement of the arts of philosophy and civilization. And the struggle for Greece to become independent modern Greece, as opposed to part of the Venetian Empire, part of the Ottomans, or, or whatever. Maria, we're talking about connecting with the real Greece rather than just going to the famous goddessy tourist places. You know, yes, Mykonos is fine and Santorini is beautiful, but if you were going to go for a vacation in the Greek Isles, somebody who's lived in Athens most of your life, where would you go? Choosing a Greek island, so many, so diverse. One of the regions of the Aegean coastline, which is really coming to life now, are the Ionian Islands. So they, now those are the ones on the Italy side. Uh, that's correct. They're over mm. on, the, on the west. Yeah, Because all the hippies would stop in <laughs> Corfu on the old boat ride over from, <laughs> right, from D.C. Right. But you've got really pretty little islands, Paxos, Kefalonia, mm. those kind of islands. And they're not as busy. Uh, they're beautiful. They're green and lush, unlike the Cycladic Islands, which are sort of very barren. Right. And uh, you can do wonderful, there are a lot of charter boat facilities there. So okay. you could charter and these are called the, the Ionian Islands. Ionian, the Ionian Islands. Islands. There you go, Irene. A few ideas for your upcoming Greece trip. Thank you. We're exploring what's new in Greece with two Athens-based tour guides on Travel with Rick Steves. Filippos Kanakaris is also a theater director and a performer with a background in history and philosophy. British-born Maria Soulas fell in love with a tall, handsome Greek in college and has made Greece her home for nearly four decades. Edri is calling in from Washington, D.C. Edri, thanks for your call. Thank you for having me. First, just to let you know, I was in Greece this summer for my granddaughter's high school graduation gift. Mm. Uh, I told her to pick a, a place in the world she wanted to go, and she picked Greece. So I had never been. That was pretty exciting. We went to Athens and Santorini, very traditional. And then we also went to Naxos. The comments earlier about Athens, I would really encourage people to obviously go to the Parthenon and those kind of places. But the parts of Athens that I fell in love with were the modern-day parts of Athens. You're never far away from antiquity, no matter where you are. And right. We went to the fish market. We went to the street where there all the spices are being sold. Yeah. We went to, I can't remember the name of the bread that everyone eats. <laughs> you get from the street vendors. Uh, what is, what is that bread? The, that, this is the kuluri. It's cool. like a pretzel. Yeah, that's it. Oh, the pretzel, that's nice. And we went to the bakery where they make it. You know, we yeah. tried to see more than just the traditional tourist spot. That was wonderful. What's interesting as I hear you talk, Edri, is it's not that tough to do. I mean, Athens is a huge city. I don't know, four million people. I mean, nearly half of all the Greeks live in Athens these days. They say from the top of the Acropolis, you can see half of all the people in Greece. Much of the city is just nondescript sprawl that wouldn't be of a lot of interest to a tourist. But in the center, with a half an hour walk, you can go from Syntagma Square in the capital. Behind that are some wonderful museums. Just to the left, you've got the anarchists in Exarchia. And then you can hike up to the Acropolis, and you've got the old placa at the base of that, and then Siri that Maria was talking about for the trendy sort of artsy area. And then the marketplace that you're talking about really is just a few blocks from there, and locals will know just where to go for their favorite souflaki stand. Frankly, I used to just try to see the famous sites and get out, but I like Athens a lot more these days. It's got a personality. It's got a pride. It feels like it's come through different crises in the last decade, and there's a confidence in Athens. There's a celebration in Athens. I like it. Yeah, that's what we found in Athens, and that, you know, I could look and see that for some people who maybe they haven't traveled outside of the United States often, Mm -hmm. or maybe they've only gone to... London or something like that. But Athens, well, it has a tough exterior in some places, Yeah, but just all sweethearts. <laughs> well, that's nice to hear. The, the people in the big city are sweethearts. And uh, you said it has a kind of a tough exterior. I, it used to be just so overrun with traffic. I just remember when I went to Athens, 
my Kleenex would turn black just because <laughs> it was so sooty. <laughs> and now they've controlled the traffic. There's more pedestrian areas. It's remarkable what Athens has done. Edry, thanks for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Maria Sulis and Philippos Kanakaris. Maria, how do you see the changes happening in Athens? Oh, it's phenomenal. I mean, it really has changed in the last five years or so. Small things, really. Far more pedestrianized areas, far more tourist-friendly. We have a great infrastructure as far as getting around in the city so people can leave their cars behind, use the metro systems. The Olympics were a turning point yes, in a way for infrastructure. Yeah, and you found yourself in a big economic hole from a debt point of view, yeah. but you certainly have good infrastructure yeah. now. You yeah, can move people around. Yeah, and uh, yeah. relatively good governance, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah. You can sense in Athens now there's a, mm-hmm. there's a feeling of pride. Yes, we've really gone through some tough times and continue to go through tough times as far as the economy mm-hmm. is concerned. But as I say, there is this sense in, in Athens with the people that they're taking back control of their city. They're mm-hmm. taking pride in their city, not just their city, mm-hmm. in their country in general. So that's important. But and it's it, tough. It's tough on a lot of people, especially the poorer. Um, yeah. You know, we're running at about a 26% unemployment. Right. Uh, much higher with the youth between 18 mm-hmm. and 26. It's closer to about 45%. So we've been singing happy little songs about Greece, but there is a, a serious challenge for the people who live there. Correct. But for a traveler, we're oh, contributing. We're yeah. helping. I suppose yeah, the tourism yeah. uh, industry welcomes Absolutely. people to come. Absolutely. Philippos, we've been talking about Athens uh, and Greece and sort of the new vibe what are your takeaways on that? Mm, yes, we've been through a, a serious financial crisis, but what is really promising and what brings up hope in our lives is the fact that I felt and I still feel that there was a reshuffling in the cards of our lives. We started realizing that we need to change a lot of things and not cut ties with the past because a thing that helped a lot of the Greeks is the fact that uh, there, is, there are strong bonds between the families. So that is the reason you don't oh, see yeah. homeless people in Athens, because the family stepped in, they assisted, even if you had a distant cousin or an uncle mm-hmm. or whatever relative. We stepped in, we assisted. And that is really good because it brought out again things that had been forgotten, caring about the others. Mm. That's why the city of Athens, as our lovely listener said, is inhabited by people that are very friendly. Because the people realized, again, the importance of smile, the importance of caring, and also the importance of breaking out of uniformity and trying things on their own and being more individual. Why is Greece exciting now? Because a lot of younger people decided to open their own businesses. Nightlife, yes, there was always nightlife in Greece, as you really well know. But the thing is now they decided not to create a store which looks like the carbon copy of another store. Mm-hmm. That's why areas like Psyri are exciting. And that's what I love about the evening scene and the restaurant scene and the cafe scene. And, and in Athens, you just feel that positivity. That's very hopeful that because of the crisis almost, the people have come together and uh, they're working quite well for a good future and certainly a warm welcome for travelers. Filipos Kanakaris and Maria Siulas, thank you so much for letting us better understand your beautiful country. Thank you. Thank you. We're taking a botanical tour of what's new in gardens around the world next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425 or by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. The classic Royal Kew Gardens near London gave Christopher Woods a solid start as a plant and garden expert. He transformed the Chanticleer Garden near Philadelphia into a romantic masterpiece before heading west to direct gardens in Santa Barbara, Mendocino, and Vancouver, B.C. In a quest to see for himself what botanic beauty could mean in the 21st century, Christopher has traveled around the world. He shares the stories of dozens of extraordinary outdoor havens in his book, Garden Lust. Christopher, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So in your book, you cover all the continents, dozens of countries. You chose 50 gardens. How did you go about researching all these gardens, and how did you decide which gardens made the cut? Once I'd had a conversation with my publisher, who sounded marginally interested at the time, I put something together. I put a four-page proposal together, and I realized that I was far too weak. So I just went online and talked to many friends. I have many friends in the garden world, around the world, and I started to build up the conversation. And eventually, uh, with all the research and all the conversations, which took some months, I came up with a list of 150 contemporary gardens. 
And so I then wrote that in the proposal and I, I talked to my would-be editor and I said, well, I've got 150 gardens, so I think we should do two volumes. And this was on the phone and there was silence on the phone on the other, other end. And uh, I said, okay, let's just do one and we'll pare it down. <laughs> yeah. So I did actually write 55 pieces, but for the expediency's sake and book size and so forth, uh, it uh, came down to 50 gardens. But when I about. looked through your book, I was expecting to find some of the gardens that I had uh, known and really enjoyed in my travels, but uh, none of them were there because you chose the gardens of our generation, not the classic gardens. Well, and that was a very conscious choice. It's a, it's a book about contemporary gardens. And that's something that we can factor in to our travels if we want to see what's going on. Now, one thing that came out of your book is gardeners are like... They can be like chefs almost, where they have a reputation and people are paying attention to what they're doing. And how is a gardener like a artistic phenom? Well, I think the chef connection is, is very true. And there are, as in the world of cooking, I mean, it's an assembly. Gardens, it's as if you take the menu, you make the menu, and you put it together and you stir it and shake it and spice it and so forth. And then you present it as if it were a meal on a table, and especially in public gardens. And there it is. And so the gardeners, the great creative gardeners of the world, both past and present, are very much like chefs. Mm -hmm. A garden can be a work of art, just like the more conventional things we think about art, paintings and statues are, are works of art. How about the cultural differences? You know, Asian, uh, American, British, European. What cultural differences do you find today, or is there a globalization that is sort of uh, beyond that now? Well, of course, there's a homogenization of culture wherever you go. As you know, uh, we get on the same kinds of planes and we get in the same kinds of taxis and we stay in the same types of hotels. But then we get out and we walk outside uh, wherever we are and we go to the market. And whether it's a market in Morocco or a market in New York, that's where you start to see the differences in the way people behave, the way people gather their food, cook their food, uh, the way families gather together. One of the examples, I think, that I quote in my book about cultural differences is I was in Oman, the country of the, the Sultanate of Oman, and I went with a young ethnobotanist up into the mountains, and I met with three elderly men, and we sat. They invited me into their house, and so I took off my shoes and sat in on a little carpet, and there was a conversation in Arabic, which I don't speak, about lentils. And apparently a farmer, two mountains away, had a specific type of lentil that had not been seen in cultivation for many, many years. And this was a great, great conversation. And the ethnobotanist was very excited and wanted to collect the lentil for the Oman Botanical Garden. Meanwhile, one of the men is peeling oranges for me and feeding me, knowing that I'm a foreign kind of idiot, and grapes and figs and so forth. The conversation could have been 2,000 years old. And I was transported back 2,000 years, hmm. even though I'd been transported, truly, literally, in a brand new SUV. And then one of the old men pulled out a phone, a cell phone. It was the oldest cell phone I'd ever seen. And it was surrounded by duct tape. And there was a conversation going on with the farmer with the lentils. And the kind of whole combination of ancient history and contemporary society with these men sitting in the mahilis, uh, the men's room of the house, it spanned centuries. We were all human beings, but the cultural differences were profound, and it was one of the best days of my life. That is a perfect example of how travel can connect you with, with worlds that you wouldn't even know exist if you didn't get away from your home and out of your comfort zone. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher Woods, and his book is Garden Lust, A Botanical Tour of the World's Best New Gardens. Now, Christopher, you went all around the world and you narrowed it down to 50 favorite gardens. Let's just quickly give me a sampling of a garden that really struck you as worth knowing about in Asia, for example. I really liked the Tokachi Millennium Forest, which is in Hokkaido. It was designed partly by an English, well-known English garden designer, Dan Pearson, and it had this interesting combination of kind of Zen Japanese. There were some landforms, hmm. big landforms that were fascinating, particularly as it was frosty the morning that I was there. And then there's a herbaceous border that is a bit like the one that you would find in southern England, 
and then a Japanese tea house. And it was a very interesting combination of kind of European and Japanese imagery together. I just thought it was a really extraordinary question about what is a sense of place. I found that to be delightful. Take us to the Arab world or Africa. What, what struck you there in your travels? <laughs> the Miracle Garden, which is one of the most wonderfully appalling places I've ever been. It's 45 million petunias and geraniums in Dubai. And uh, as you well know, Dubai is a desert and the temperature gets to be abominable. And uh, one person basically has created this enormous garden with peacocks made out of petunias and a whole village of a kind of Swiss village made out of geraniums and petunias. And it's the opposite of what attracts me. But it gets millions and millions of visitors per year. I was going to say, it sounds like the Mall of the Americas for gardening. It is, in a way. But why I included it was that it gets millions of visitors, mm -hmm. and all of them, except me, were taking selfies. Right. It's extraordinarily popular. I cannot mm -hmm. discount the popularity of a garden, even though it's not one that I personally would want anything to do with. Especially in an arid land like that, to be so lush. Well, there's another garden, and actually not far away, Al Barari, which is a, a private estate with lots of... Um, large houses and so forth, where they're doing serious work on planting and recycling, of uh, recirculating of water, including black water, and they have lowered the temperature by three degrees centigrade using wow. these systems. And there's a lot of work going on in desert communities on how to mitigate increasing heat and how to recirculate sparse resources such as water. So um, there's some very intelligent things. That's a very, it, relating to climate smart agriculture, climate smart gardening, and mitigation when it comes to uh, carbon problems and global warming is tied in with uh, forestry and, and gardens. Take us to Europe. What's a, a new garden in Europe that we should be aware of? I can choose two. Uh, one is the Garden of Stone in Peratallada in Spain, which is north of Barcelona, which is actually an ancient place. Essentially, it's a church and a courtyard that's 10th century, but it's being remodeled and modernized to be a museum. There's a guest house and uh, various, uh, and a, it'll be an event center and a small event center. What I liked about it, it was really simple. It's basically one olive and a few other trees. But it's a very modern, and the travertine marble is cut precisely mm. by laser cuts, and there's a swimming pool, and it's very kind of hip and groovy and, and mm. so forth. But you put your cheek against one of the stones that make the cathedral there, the church there, and you can almost feel the thousand years' worth of history. Mm. And I found that to be a, a greatly romantic, sensual experience. And again, it, I, you know, I go back between the modern and the past, and the two connect. But I liked very much a very modern garden, which is the Parc Clichy in Touching Martin Luther King Park in, in Paris, Parc Clichy Batignol, which is a whole new area. It was a large uh, railroad yard, an assembly yard. And there are buildings going up, housing going up. I think it's going to be the new center of the judicial court system in Paris. And... It's a wonderful open park, and it's when you live in apartment buildings, where are you going to assemble? Mm. And so this is a place where I saw in the corner were a group of Muslim women with their children chattering away. Uh, there were lovers, I say in the book, young lovers on the hillside telling lies to each other. There were lawyers <laughs> sitting down telling even more lies to each other. And there was a young man, I, I stopped and listened to him, there was a young man with his son who was lying down next to a pond that had frogs in it, and he was explaining very carefully what these frogs were and what they were doing. And they were croaking away, and there was frogs born and so forth. And he was giving the child a very simple and preliminary and primary uh, natural history lesson. And I thought that the park um, caters to all the needs of all the types of people in that area of Paris. Mm, it's beautiful. And that was important. Part particularly that, important. Part of that urban environment. Chris Woods is the author of Garden List. 
It's a beautifully photographed guide to 50 of the world's most interesting contemporary gardens. He posts photos and musings on plants, gardens, and his travels at urbanehorticulture.org. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Olga's calling from Vancouver in Washington State. Olga, thanks for your call. Oh, hello, Rick and Christopher. Thank you for taking my call. You bet. Do you have a comment for um, Christopher or some thoughts on gardens? Yes, yes. My favorite garden is in Giverny, France. It's Monet's garden. To me, the paintings that Monet created, they, they come to life. The water lilies, the bridges, the flowers, his home. They go from impressionistic to, to realistic. To me, all, almost all the senses uh, are awakened. Sight, smell, touch, and sound. Mm. And um, I've gone there three times in two different seasons, so I really enjoy going there, and I hope to go back again. I think the philosophy of Monet was to enjoy it in different seasons and with different light in the morning and the dusk and so on. Christopher, what's your, what are your uh, thoughts about uh, Giverny? Well, I've been to Giverny uh, many times. What I find fascinating about Giverny is compare it with the paintings at the museum, uh, the large water lily paintings. And we know that Monet's eyesight was very poor when he was painting these water lilies. So the paintings themselves have a softness about them, and they are an impression of water lilies. They're not a documentation of water lilies. So in many ways, the paintings are much more romantic because of the softness than the actual water lilies growing in the garden. But... To see those paintings and then go to the garden and see that bridge and make those connections between one of the great pieces of art in the world and the living art of the garden is a huge experience, and I've enjoyed it immensely and regard that garden very highly. And it's just so romantic to me to think of the painter losing his eyesight, dedicating in the last years of his life to building this amazing garden. The gift shop was actually his uh, studio where he painted these, and I would think the way to cap your visit to Giverny is to go to the Orangerie in Paris, which was uh, designed by Monet to show off his water lilies. And in a sense, going to the Orangerie is like going to a garden, seeing it through, I guess, the artistic uh, genius of the painter Monet. Absolutely. Ah, that's so beautiful. Olga, did you go to the Orangerie in Paris after your visit to Giverny? Yes. Well, I did it in reverse. Oh, okay. <laughs> I went first. I just love putting those together, though. Thanks for your call, Olga. Thank you. And we have an email from Claire in Vancouver, Canada. And Claire writes, One of my favorite travel experiences has been touring public and private gardens during open garden days in the Netherlands. The Dutch clearly love their gardens, and it's always a treat to see not only the beautiful spaces they've created, but to get a glimpse of the private homes and an idea of how people live in these places and appreciate their gardens. Do you know anything about that, Christopher? Well, I do. I mean, I wrote about actually an American woman who has gardened, d designed gardens in the Netherlands for many years. Her name is Carrie Preston. And uh, she took me on a three-day tour of the gardens that she did. And they were all very small residential gardens. They weren't the palaces and the public parks that one can easily go to, but these were private houses. You know, most houses in the Netherlands, most, are tiny and their backyards are tiny. And yeah. that requires great skill, a great kind of mathematical consciousness, but also a kind of intimacy, a much stronger intimacy with the homeowner than one would have if you were designing a big landscape. And I wrote about that, and I found that fascinating, that trying to change the shape of a really tiny space is extraordinarily hmm. difficult, and I think Carrie has done an extraordinarily successful job in doing so. You know, reading your book, Garden Lust, and I, I just want to remind people, this is Garden Lust, a botanical tour of the world's best new gardens by Christopher Woods. I'm inspired to make a point to get more out of the gardens that you encounter when you travel. Let's close out with just take me on a stroll for a moment through a bit of a garden that really resonated with you. And tell me what you're experiencing. You mentioned it's like a favorite sweater sometimes, you know. Walk me through this garden and give me a sense of the wonder. It's actually one in America, and it's the Naples Botanical Garden in Florida. And it was a parking lot and nothing before it was created. 
And it was designed by five landscape architects. And to have five landscape architects in a room is a very dangerous thing in terms of temperament and so forth. But extraordinarily, they got on very well. Now, it's in Naples, Florida, so it's tropical. And it therefore has, everything has grown extraordinarily fast. But it's a series of experiences. And while they have labels like this is the Brazilian garden or the Caribbean garden or the Javanese garden, if you change the metaphor in a way and take it as a musical piece, when you enter, the music starts to unfold and it's adagio and so forth. I mean, it's just classical concerto of botany. Added to that, of course, you're hearing that, but you're seeing it, but you're also smelling it. So because it's in the tropics, you get the sweet scent of frangipani that just comes down one avenue into your nose and, and heightens your senses. And then you move on and there's another fragrance. And then there's the sounds of birds, various birds, and you walk out to a natural area. This is on the edge of the Everglades, and it's called the Preserve, and I think it's 60 acres of natural area. And all of a sudden, things quieten down. I don't know who composed this. Could it be Beethoven? Because <laughs> after you come away from the quiet of the Preserve, there's a riot and a crescendo of flowers. Ah. And it's noisy and loud and so forth. And it's just this continuing experience that rises and falls for your senses, but inside you too, there's the rise and fall of excitement and quiet and peace and curiosity and this whole range of experiences. And it applies to music or if you go to an art museum and you see three or four different paintings and the emotions that those paintings evoke in you, any of the expressions of humankind. And gardening is no different from that. Wow, that is a new frontier in pleasure, to unleash your sensuality. And it all comes across in this book. Christopher Woods, thanks for writing Garden Lust. Thank you so much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. By yours truly, Tim Tatton, with Isaac Kaplan-Wilner and Kazmara Hall. Special thanks to our colleagues at the UC Berkeley Northgate Studio for their help this week. When you're traveling, you can find out when stations in other cities air Travel with Rick Steves. Look for the link that says Find a Local Station at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.